Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 314, Drake Plays Bowls. To start briefly, an announcement of a bit of polling fun we're going to have, into which you may join if you wish. What we're going to do is to vote on the most mighty English medieval monarch. There are two rounds. Pre-selection is going on right now on Facebook, on the History of England podcast group which is not to be confused, by the way, with the History of England Facebook page. And then, on St George's Day, the 23rd of April, of course, the second round will go up of those eight selected from the groups. A poll on the History of England website. Now, when you vote on that second round, you can also enter for a prize draw, because, yes, as every good Whig politician knows, with every vote comes the need to bribe the electorate. The prize draw will be two winners, one of an Edward I long cross penny, the other of an Elizabeth I penny. To find out more, go to the Facebook site or to the website thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Also, I am very sorry to announce that the 2021 History of England tour has had to be cancelled. I am really embarrassed about this second year in a row. It was a close run thing, but there's simply too much uncertainty about concerning flights and COVID policies. And unfortunately, the state of my health too, which is perfectly fine for most things, but immunity is not currently up to it. To those of you who had booked or planned, I am very sorry indeed. I just don't think I genuinely had a choice. The travel company and I will review things in July and hopefully third time lucky and we'll go in September 
2022. Now, I did make a solemn promise to all of you that I would not bore you with my Year 7 project on the supplying of biscuits and comestibles to the Spanish Armada. Now I'm there, I really find it hard to resist. It's almost like a betrayal of my Year 7 self. But I will not let you down, you are off the hook. Though, I also did a project when I was just eight, off my own bat, as a sort of I-want-to-do-something-extra thing, sir, on Trinidad and Tobago, and Mr Timpson lost it. It is an injustice that will live with me for the rest of my life. Let me just say then that the boss of the Great Armada Project was the hero of Lepanto and of the Azores, a peerless naval commander, the Marquis of Santa Cruz. But it transpired quite quickly that the peerless naval commander had a bit of a challenge on his hands when it came to organising the provision of biscuits, well, more broadly, the enormous task of organising this expedition for 1587. And meanwhile, Palmer was not very enthusiastic about Philip's hybrid plan either, which caused a certain amount of dithering to go on. I shall be bold to say that if you find yourself without adequate resources to undertake such a great enterprise as this, I incline to the view that it would be better to defer or drop it. Now, the plan at this stage remained to land in Ireland, not to link up with Palmer, and for Palmer's mission to be separate, an invasion from Flanders. Now, Philip dithered towards the idea of landing at the Isle of Wight as well. From the start of 1587, Philip was increasingly ill and unable to deal with business, so some questions were not resolved. And then news arrived at the little workroom at the Escorial in mid-May, as a result of which Philip became seriously ill. What news was that, I hear you ask? On the 2nd of April 1587, Drake had set sail on a new venture, with four of the Queen's galleons and 17 other ships. It was another joint stock operation, with the orders from the Queen to cause such damage that would stop the Great Armada from sailing, and catch the treasure fleet if he could. Drake hastily and immediately set out from Plymouth Sound, which was handy since Drake knew what his boss was like. And at the last minute, Elizabeth dithered, worrying about her peace negotiations with Palmer that were going on at the time, and sent a fast pinnace to catch Drake and tell him not to burn the King of Spain's britches. It was too late. Blown by a Protestant wind, Drake was just a memory on the breeze. That memory on the breeze turned up at Cardiz on the 29th of April. Now the Armada was at a critical stage. Vast quantities of food, and yes, of biscuits, were being assembled. And the trouble was, of course, that things like the half a million tonnes of cheese obtained from the Baltic could not just be popped into the freezer to keep them fresh until the off. Acquiring that quantity of provisions in a pre-capitalist inflexible economy was not easy. Keeping it fresh was a nightmare. So the Armada had to be off soon. Also, you know the way we talked about the Navy Board and the Ordnance Board in England? Well, such things as permanent institutions just didn't exist in Spain. So the Armada was a vast task and an extraordinarily complicated one to boot, requiring the wholesale commandeering of private vessels as well as pressing royal ships into the Great Armada. 
Vast quantities of provisions were hanging about, merchantmen and hulks stuffing Spanish harbours to be used for carrying provisions. Multiple types of cannonballs in the days before standardisation. Gunpowder, armaments. This commandeering included the ships of foreign nations too. The Rata Santa Maria Encorada from Genoa, for example. The San Andrew of Dundee. Cardiz was a major centre of activity, though Lisbon was the port from which Armada would finally sail. But Cardiz, the southern Spanish port with excellent facilities, was well defended with good communications with the interior of Spain and that was the main centre of preparations. So, when Drake and his fleet turned up on the 29th of April and entered the Outer Haven and within 24 hours burned and captured 24 Spanish ships, he was something of a downer, shall we say. For a while, it looked as though the fleet would enter the inner harbour and maybe enter and sack the town itself. But the speedy arrival of one Duke of Medina Sidonia with additional militia stopped Drake at that little game. So Drake then sailed on, on to Sagres in Portugal near Cape St Vincent. Now the Cape was a well-known beauty spot for pirates since so much Spanish shipping passed it on their way to port. So much piracy occurred there that it was actually called the Cape of Surprises. Now by capturing the port of Sagres, Drake had a base from which to terrorise merchant shipping and the Armada supply route between Andalusia and Lisbon. Which, after some careful consideration about whether this was compatible with a robust moral framework, he did! Until, in a blaze of publicity and burnt ships, he sailed for the Azores in search of that treasure fleet. Instead of finding the floater, he found just the one ship, which he then duly seized, the Portuguese carrack Sao Felipe, with which he returned to Plymouth on the 7th of July. The Sao Felipe was just one ship, one teensy-veensy fraction of Philip's merchant fleet. And yet it yielded 140,000 quid, a significant proportion of English national income, and yet further evidence of the vast wealth coming into Spanish hands. Now, in terms of actual damage, Drake's carnage was surely not insignificant, but hardly relevant in terms of the total armada size and preparation. And yet it caused mayhem. The Portuguese of Lisbon started pointing out that they had suffered none of this chaos until Philip came along. Santa Cruz was ordered out with a fleet to bring home the treasure fleet safely, which kept him away from armada preparations for three whole months and gave his fleet a beating in the storms as well. Merchants were in a total panic, trade suffered, and psychologically, once again, Drake had penetrated into the heart of Spain's might and based themselves on her shores with impunity for a month. As expressed in the letter to Philip from one of his counsellors, With this corsair at sea in such great strength, we cannot protect any island or coast, nor predict where he may attack. So it is not clear what we can do to stop him. Now, whatever you think of Drake, it's hard to avoid the accusation that he was a boastful kind of bloke, not short of self-confidence. Indeed, this trip was again marred by a resulting court case brought against him by one of his aristocratic captains. 
but even he recognised that he'd only singed the beard of the King of Spain, a pinprick when seen in the context of the Spanish Leviathan. And Drake knew the size of the challenge when he wrote to Walsingham, I dare not almost write unto your honour of the great forces we hear the King of Spain hath out. Prepare in England strongly, and most by sea. Stop him now, and stop him ever. Having said all of that, what Drake achieved was not nothing. Certainly, in the annals of the world's greatest beard-singing exploits, it stands up against any singing event. Drake was particularly proud of burning thousands of barrel staves, which subsequent historians such as Garrett Mattingly have linked to the level of decay of Armada provisions after they had sailed, though my mate Jeff notes that there's no comments in the Spanish records to support the story. More immediately, Drake's barbering exploits delayed the Armada by a year. Santa Cruz had spent three months to protect the treasure fleet, supplies and provisions had been badly disrupted. And just as critically, Philip's plan for the Armada was irrevocably changed. Now you might remember that the plan had been to sail to Ireland and establish a base there, and for Santa Cruz then to continue on and land in the West Country, while Palmer meanwhile crossed the channel on his own barges with an army. Palmer hated the plan because Palmer's plan had relied on surprise. Now, since the papal sword had been delivered publicly to Palmer, a symbol of crusading virtue, it was a fair old bet that someone somewhere had rumbled that there was something afoot in the Netherlands. Finally, in September 1587, Philip's mind had been changed by the chaos that Drake had inflicted there would no longer be any talk about Ireland. The orders to Santa Cruz and Palmer were that Santa Cruz would sail up the channel and anchor off the Margate Head, which is at the tippy-top of Eastern Kent, by the way. There's probably a chip shop there now. He would secure the seas against the English, and on his way he would warn Palmer of his approach so that Palmer could get ready. Philip continued, The said duke will immediately send across the army that he has prepared in small boats, of which, for transit alone, he has plenty. And given that the English army was rubbish and Palmer a military genius, everyone would live happily ever after except Elizabeth Tudor. And roll credits. It has to be said that from here on in, Philip's level of pother and panic rises consistently. In one case, he even wrote to Palmer testily asking why he hadn't already snuck across the channel anyway, despite his specific orders not to. Palmer wrote back a most injured letter. In said letter, there's an interesting reference to a problem that would be a bit of a monster when the time came. Your Majesty is well aware that without the support of this fleet, I could not cross over to England with the boats I have which sort of begs the question of why he'd proposed that approach in the first place. But hey, as every politician knows, consistency is overrated. Actually, the evaluation in Spain of the whole Armada enterprise often reads with the same level of optimism and positivity as an article about Brexit in The Guardian. A senior naval captain wrote a piece describing how the English ships were much faster and nimbler and had a much longer range for their cannon, while the Spanish strength 
was in closing, grappling and boarding. He went on. But unless God helps us by a miracle, the English, who have faster and handier ships than ours, and many more long-range guns, and who know their advantage just as well as we do, will never close with us at all, but stand aloof and knock us to pieces with their culverins without our being able to do them any serious hurt. So we are sailing against England in the confident hope of a miracle. In January, meanwhile, Santa Cruz's fates decided that a cruise in the Channel was not for him this time, and in January 1588 the great man was carried off by Typhus. He was replaced as boss by the Duke of Medina Sidonia. The Duke had impressive organisational abilities, which he'd already showed in his part of the Armada, but he was short on naval combat chops. He himself was well aware of the chaos in which the Armada preparations were and was super enthusiastic about the new job. Not. His thanks but no thanks letters to Philip fill several pages. Here is a flavour. I have no doubt that His Majesty would do me the favour I humbly beg and will not entrust me to a task of which certainly I shall not give a good account. For I do not understand it, know nothing about it, have no health for the sea, and have no money to spend on it. Medina Sidonia could not be accused of being overconfident. He sent another letter in which he argued the whole enterprise was inevitably doomed to failure. This letter never reached the king as it happens, but was intercepted by councillors who essentially told him to stop whinging and that God would provide. Do not depress us with fears of the fate of the Armada, because in such a cause... God will make sure it succeeds. Well, that covers that then. By the end of February 1588, the new Captain General of the Ocean Sea was headed Lisbon Way. Medina Sidonia, by and large, would demonstrate that while a bit of self-knowledge is a good thing, it's not always actually a good guide. His king's faith was well-placed. Certainly, in three months, some order had been imposed on preparations, and the Armada had grown to 130 ships, the number of troops had reached 19,000, give or take, and after a few parades in April, a general muster was held at Lisbon in May 1588, and on the 28th of May 1588, the Great Armada was led down the Tagus towards the open sea. Doom and retribution was heading towards the English. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. OK, so what are the English then? With what confidence did they await their adversaries? Well, one of the assumptions we all make about the Armada campaign, or I used to make, I should rather say, was that if the Spaniards had managed to land just one of their indisputably excellent soldiers on the shores of England, just one, even if he was the regimental toilet cleaner with a bad case of dysentery, the English 
would have been toast. I mean, I exaggerate for effect, clearly, but you know what I mean. I have to ask, were the English really so helpless? The truth is that the English had tried to put measures in place to be able to defend Jerusalem and England's green and pleasant land, which may well get a future mensch, actually, so listen up. Basically, the English were painfully aware that when it came to land warfare, they were a bit rubbish. And the debacle of the expedition to La Havre in the 1560s had reminded any who might have forgotten that fact. Part of the fault lay with having no excuse for a permanent core professional army to bolster new recruits with. There was Berwick and its garrison, but the main source had always been Calais and its garrison there. So worried about this then that they kept tabs on all the gentlemen volunteers who served abroad in armies and the soldiers who went with them so they could call on their expertise. But the core of England's strength, if that be the word, lay in the county militias, consisting of all its men aged between 16 and 60. A statute of 1558 had laid out how they should be armed, but to be honest, most of the militias were at best armed with a bow and a billhook. The bow, of course, was becoming a bit out of date by then, and the billhook was way shorter than the pike that was used all over Europe now. So, if you have a billhook, by the time you'd identified your opposition soldier to go for, you'd be eating his pike. So, the Privy Council realised this would never, never do. But they couldn't afford a pike and musket for everyone, so they required a subset of the militia to be properly armed and properly trained on the new weapons. This group was called the Trained Band, which sounds a lot like a Sherlock Holmes story, but in fact isn't. That's the Speckled Band. We will hear more of these Trained Bands, especially when we get to the Civil War, and you might think that although this sounds like an improvement, it was still likely to be no match for the mercenaries of Germany or Switzerland or the Spanish Tertios. It is worth mentioning, though, that the nobility remained very important here. It was still much the easiest way to raise troops, to call on the affinities and tenants of the big landowners, and generally they actually also turned out to be the most effective troops. The bulk, though, were drawn from the needy, desperate and criminal, those who had slipped over the poverty line into podcasting and desperately needed employment of some kind including those open to a deal to release them from prison where they were rotting away. On the other hand, we have, I believe, dealt with the other side of the military, the Navy, where the main hopes and investments of the English were invested, with the new galleons and a modernisation programme sometimes called the Dreadnought Revolution, after one of the new ship designs. From being an also-ran in Henry VIII's time, it is interesting how quickly the work of Elizabethan pirates and corsairs had lifted the reputation of the English navy. As we've already heard, the Spanish treated them with great respect. However, the real success of the English navy would prove to lie as much with the mechanics of gunnery as with their ships. Now, the English loved their ships. They felt pride and confidence in them and in their ability to handle them. Our ships doth show themselves like gallants here. I assure you, it would do a man's heart good to behold them, wrote Sir William Winter. And in the spirit of the same mindless optimism that is the mark of every true nationalist, the Lord Admiral also brimmed with love and confidence. 
I think there were never in any place in the world worthier ships than these for so many. And few as we are, if the King of Spain's forces be not hundreds, we will make good sport with them. At the same time as all this brimming was going on, the English knew full well that if it came to hand-to-hand -to -hand fighting, they were probably only to get the silver medal, given the number of men the Spanish carried with them and their experience. This meant that the tactics were also super clear. The English ships were more weatherly and better armed with ship-killer cannon. So, they'd do a Muhammad Ali on them. Dance like a butterfly, sting like a bee, pulverising the poor Spaniards from a distance. Bring it on! Though, having said that, they'd really rather sink them before they got here at all, if possible. Now, the new boss, the Lord Admiral, was not one of those names that fill the Elizabethan Corsair's handbook. His name was Howard of Effingham, and he was not, ironically, a particularly accomplished seaman. Admiral at that time was as much an admin job as a corsario. But his one true talent appears to have been to be realistic about his own talents compared to all the stars around him and to use those stars effectively and listen to their advice. Also, he was one of the few that gave a tinker's curse about the condition of his men after the Armada. And if men should not be cared for better than to let them starve and die miserably, we should very hardly get men to serve. But before God, I would rather have never penny in the world than that they should lack. This was an attitude, it has to be said, signally missing from Burley and Elizabeth's approach. They were far too busy waving to the crowds and counting the savings from seamen who died before they got their proper payoff. But that's for later. Oh, and fab fact about Howard, he loved spaniels. Anyway, Howard and his lieutenants, Drake, Hawkins, Frobisher, realised that sinking the Spanish ships was easier in port than at sea, and you only have to look at the numbers to see how true this is from Cadiz. Now, as it happens, Medina Sidonia, having left the Tagus, caught a serious illness almost immediately, cold feet. Seeing the lack of adequate provisions despite all his work, he put into harbour at Coruña in northern Spain. The benefit was that he could spend some time revictualling his fleet. He also had time to fire off a letter to the boss, which really were as terrified as one David Crowther when forced to take a zip wire over a chasm by his daughter. The letter basically said, Look, boss, this is a busted flush. Why not make peace? And by the way, I don't think God's on our side anymore. The answer he received was something of a burn. Philip concluded the burn with the words, I have dedicated this enterprise to God. Get on then and do your part. Similar words to those used to me in front of the zip wire all those years ago as it happens. So Medina Sidonia squared his shoulders, stuck out his chin and with a good southerly wind set off for destiny. The crossing of the Bay of Biscayo went pretty well, with one very significant event, though. Santa Cruz's original plan had called for a very strong squadron of galleys, and the old hero's instincts had been true. These galleys would help fight battles and protect barges in coastal waters, where their manoeuvrability and shallow draft would be king. Now, Philip had allocated a measly four of them to Medina Sidonia, 
All four of these failed to cope with the storms in Biscay and had to leave for port. Now their loss would be keenly felt. Ironically, at a similar time, Howard was desperately trying to get out of Plymouth Harbour to get down to Coruña and take the last chance to burn the Armada in port. The same wind that blew the Armada to England's shores kept blowing the English back to port in Plymouth. So, 1-0 to Spain. So the English waited, while in London, Burley fretted about how little money they had and how they were to pay for all those blessed sailors. Could the Spanish please get their collective asses into gear and get on with it? Meanwhile, the English commanders, including Drake of course, kept themselves amused as well as they could. And one of those ways might well have been, you guessed it, by playing bowls. So, as tradition has it, there was Franny and his chumps playing bowls on the 19th of July on Plymouth Hoe. When suddenly, the game was disturbed, Captain Fleming breathlessly ran up and declared that the beacons had been lit, the enemy was in the Silly Isles. Or maybe the pinnace Golden Hind came into the harbour to tell them, whatevs, the point is that the message reached the bowlers and everyone ran round like headless chickens or crying out, don't panic, or queuing up for a last visit to the loo. While our hero, Francis Drake, Sir Francis Drake, shaken not stirred, remarked coolly, There is plenty of time to finish the game and beat the Spaniards too. Well, what a dude. Now, sadly, historians are by and large a miserable lot, by which I mean they put a high value on truth, light and justice as opposed to a good old story and a Bakewell tart. Generally, then, the consensus is very mixed about this tale, I am sorry to say. John Sugden categorically says... It's a load of all baloney, which traces its origin to a Spanish noble in 1624, boasting that the Armada was so effective at sneaking up on the English that it might have caught them playing bowls. Professor Rogers essentially says, sure, if they had been playing bowls, they wouldn't have hung about. Colin Martin and my mate Jeff treat it with complete disdain, not even mentioning it. Garrett Mattingly who wrote by far the best entertaining history book in terms of letting the full rollickingness of the story come out in full fat, says, No one knows, egad, and it jolly well deserves to be true. I, personally, shall choose to believe it, because, you know, I'm not a proper historian. You fellow history lovers may choose as you wish. This might be the time, in comparing the fleets, to lay to rest a few of the Armada myths I talked about, the one about the size of the Goliath Armada ships, apparently so much bigger than the little English Davids. This one is kind of true on one hand, but not really true on the other. It is true in the letter of it. The average size of the ships in the Spanish fleet were bigger, but it's not really true in the spirit of it. The Spanish fleet had a lot of very large transport ships, in fighting strength, the English had the advantage. The English had over 80 fighting ships, faster and more heavily armed. The largest English ship was Martin Frobisher's Triumph of a 1,000 tonnes. Now, there were a couple of Spanish ships that were a little bigger, but they were hulks, and the biggest was not much bigger either. Incidentally, this seems to be another moment to mention why the English Navy was ahead on points, which is that the English were way, way better at naming their ships. 
generally speaking, the Spaniards went for saints. <sighs> Medina Sidonia's flagship was the San Martin, and a very large number of Spanish ships went the same way. Or, you know, biblical events like the Ascension, or maybe places. Well, when Howard took his rather belated challenge to the Spanish fleet off Plymouth, the ship he sailed in was called the Disdain. Now that's a good name for a ship of war, don't you think? If you're going to issue a challenge to battle, I cannot imagine a better ship to do it in than the Disdain. Drake, of course, sailed in the Revenge, Frobisher in the Triumph, John Hawkins captained the Victory, Thomas Fenner the Non-Paray, the Without Equal, George Beeston the Dreadnought. Even when the names weren't particularly martial, they had a ring to them. Ark Royal, Golden Lion, Rainbow, White Bear, Swiftshore, Swallow. There's real love, poetry, ambition, piracy and defiance in those names. So, taking names into account now, the English draw level, one all. The sight of the Armada as it came into view, however, was undeniably awesome by all accounts. Medina Sidonia was to prove a thoroughly competent commander as it happens, despite his personal doubts, and he had held a meeting with his commanders before they approached Plymouth by the 30th of July and drew up in a well-designed and beautifully organised galley fleet battle order. The weaker ships were held in the centre, the vanguard and rearguard held the fighting ships to protect them, and the formation had two long horns. The formation emphasised a line abreast organisation and meant that to get at anything the English would have to venture between the horns and find it difficult to then escape the crescent, as well as being pulverised from two directions. The weakness of the horns was that the ships there were very vulnerable to attack, so before long the horns are sort of squished, shortened, like two sort of, I don't know, man buns on the back of the armada. The English were impressed as the armada, which stretched over two miles, so large was it, came into sight. We never thought they could ever have found, gathered and joined so great a force of puissant ships together and so well appointed with their cannon, culverin and other great pieces of brass ordnance. One seafaring nation recognised the training and discipline that had gone to create such an ordered formation from another. Now, when they appeared, the Spanish had the wind. This is obviously an opportunity for some childish and smutty joke, but you're too dignified for that. So I shall resist, and instead put on my best master and commander voice and talk about the weather gauge. In the days of sailing ships, if you were to windward, i.e. the wind gets to you first before your opponent, then you have a significant advantage of manoeuvrability. You get to decide when to attack. So... Since the southeasterly wind was blowing the Spaniards up the channel, as it were, they had the weather gauge as they approached Plymouth. The English ships had to warp themselves out of harbour to get behind them. I don't think warping has anything to do with Scotty in this instance. It means chucking an anchor out and dragging yourself along by pulling it in, a bit by bit, against the wind. A tiresome process. But this tiresome process led to the first day of combat, which was to be an eye-opener for both sides. 
the Spanish were unsurprised to see that the English took the tactic of standing out of effective Spanish gunning range and trying to pulverise the Spanish with their long culverins. However, the quality of the English ships, performance and rigging did surprise them and a different aspect of the English manner of attack did also. Ships back then did not attack in the manner to which Nelson has made us accustomed, i.e. the ships in a long line, line ahead, as they call it, Indian file, you might say. The tactic then was line abreast, all ships side by side, approaching the enemy and then firing their bow chasers, getting in close and boarding to have a good old bust up on ships. Line ahead, the ships each arrive at the enemy in turn, turn aside, blast off their broadside, turn, give them the other side and then sail off to reload. In the 16th century, there is categorically no reloading of guns during the action. It takes too long, you'd be shot to pieces. This, says Colin Martin and my mate Jeff, could be the first line ahead attack in the history of European naval warfare. The doyen of naval history, though, NAM Rogers, see something completely different, it has to be said, in the first days at least. A sort of melee of line abreast approach, though long-range firing nonetheless. So you see, theories abound. The English, however, were surprised in a most unpleasant way. They appeared to be having very little impact on the mighty armada with their fancy guns. In the first day, actually, they did score some successes, but they were largely self-inflicted by the Spaniards. The San Salvador blew up, though sadly the English were then forced to admit that they never touched it, Gov. Wasn't me, Gov. Seems to have been some argument between a Spanish officer and a German gunner about love, I think. Then the ship, the Rosario, damaged her bowsprit and was forced to fall off from the Armada as well. There's then a very funny and most Drake-like incident with the good ship Rosario. Drake's job that first night was to stay out on a flank and keep a light made so that everyone else would not get tangled up with the armada by mistake. The light, however, disappeared. And in the morning, oops, how extraordinary. Drake's revenge was right next to the Rosario. Now that's spooky. Drake, of course, did his duty in such a circumstance and took the Rosario's surrender as a prize and the 52,000 ducats that she carried as well. Well, Martin Frobisher, a good Yorkshireman, and therefore jolly careful with his cash and about as direct as the English ever get, was hopping mad. He reckoned Drake had failed in his duty and sought his own personal profit thinketh to cousin us of our shares of 15,000 ducats, but we will have our shares, or I will make him spend the best blood in his belly, for he hath had enough of these cousining cheats already. Drake didn't really bother to try and defend himself. In explaining why his lights had disappeared, he gave some vague excuse about seeing some strange sails in the distance and going to investigate which carried about the same level of conviction as the dog ate my homework. Frobisher had the lad banged to rights is my carefully weighted historical judgment. After a day of hard work, though, the general feeling among the English was one of worry. The Rosario had seemed very well armed and manned when they got on board and looked her over, so getting any closer looked like a bad idea to the English. 
but after a day of standing off and doing the pulverising thing, the Armada had stayed superbly organised, had progressed serenely on her way and lost no ship to English fire. Unless the Armada had a lot more argumentative German gunners hidden away, the prognosis was suddenly not good. Not good at all. And if the English could not stop her, none of them felt confident about the performance of their trained bands against Palmer's tercias. What to do? We will find out about what happens in the next episode. Thank you everyone for listening and don't forget the St George's Day poll for the mightiest medieval monarch. The first poll for pre-selection is up there. Good luck everyone. Have a great week or fortnight, maybe the latter, and try not to get too nervous worrying about who's going to win in the big Armada bust-up. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.